Please turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth, R-U-T-H. <laughs> the last time we saw Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field and him taking notice of her, and today we're going to see Ruth further this kinsman-redeemer process. So we're going to jump in with verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you, now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our kinsman? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down." And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, wants to find security. And that um, word can also be translated rest, right? A home. So she gives her instructions based on Jewish custom. Now, remember, Ruth was brought up as a pagan woman. So no doubt she's assimilated into uh, Hebrew society and knows a lot of things, but certainly... Uh, her mother-in-law would know a lot more. And if you weren't here the last time, we covered this story uh, in depth, and we went back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, the law of the kinsman redeemer. And we also went into Deuteronomy 25, which we see Leverite marriage. So those things all come into play here. Um, the, term, the Hebrew term goal, I hope I'm saying it right, was the next of kin that would buy back the relative's lost or forfeited property property, and included in that, uh, he would marry the widow if applicable, right? So verse 3, Ruth washed, anointed, and put on her best clothes. In a way, she prepared herself for a wedding. And you're going to see a lot of, especially in this, a lot of symbolism here. Uh, certainly the, what we see in the Old Testament and is really a type of, um, you know, Jesus uh, buying the, the Gentiles, right? The, redeeming the Gentiles. Uh, but what we see here is she washed, anointed, and put on her best clothes. And this is symbolic, really, of what we should be doing as believers, because the Bible says that as a body of believers, we are married to Christ, right? Christ is the head, right? We're the body, and Christ is the bridegroom, and we're the bride. And uh, you see all this imagery. But it's kind of neat, because we can look at our own lives and see uh, a routine or um, uh, cer certainly something we should pay attention to in these three actions. Number one, having our sins washed and cleansed. First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can do that as many times as we need to. We can come before the Father at any point in time and repent and be washed and cleansed of our sins, right? The second thing here is anointing. Well, Anointing with oil was always symbolic of the Holy Spirit when we looked in the Old Testament. And that signifies walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And again, as believers, we can choose to walk into the flesh or we can choose to walk in the Spirit. And you really can't do both at the same time, so it's a decision that we as believers make with our lives. And the third thing is she put on her best garment. And we even see in the scripture a lot of imagery about changing clothes uh, to convey a spiritual truth. 
In Revelation 19, we see the saints with white robes in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage between the church and, and the church's Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, understand this too. Uh, when you look at these, you kind of got to go back into what was going on at the time in Israel's history, but the men often threshed in the evening because there would be a wind that would blow by. So they would thresh in the evening, right? And they would work for much of the evening, and then they would sleep next to the harvest, and it would also protect the harvest from people who would come in. After all that work, you certainly don't want to leave, and then somebody takes your stuff, right? So they would. So she's saying, listen, go down. This is where he's going to be. This is what the, the men are doing, and she gives uh, her daughter-in-law instructions here. And verse 4 she says, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. Now, um, uncovering his feet, and then in verse 9 it says, he'll cover you with his wings. So it's kind of like a thing where the men would wear these type of uh, garments, and um, especially a wealthy man would wear a type of robe, and uh, when he would fall asleep, she would uncover his feet. It was nothing, some people get the wrong impression, there was nothing sexual about it. She would uncover his feet, and then she would lie down at his feet and then cover herself with the robe. Now, again, there's all symbolism here, and you have to understand the customs, and it's kind of neat when you really look at the Hebrew customs, how fascinating it is. But it says that he will cover you with his wing. Now, when you translate the word, that word wing can be translated skirt, or the edge, or the border, or the corner of a man's robe. So you're starting to get the picture here. And the robe and the mantle signified claiming protection and redemption. And the coverer claimed the coveree. So the person who was covering you would claim you. Now, it's very interesting, and I thought of when I was reading this, Elijah and Elisha, right? When Elijah, the prophet, saw Elisha plowing with the oxen, and he was, he was a farm boy, and uh, Elijah knew that that man was going to be his successor. He was going to be a prophet. So he took off his mantle and he threw it on Elisha. He claimed him. So again, you read the Old Testament, you're like, what's he doing? But when you understand what they were doing and their customs, it makes sense to us, right? So this process brings Ruth and Boaz into a deeper non-sexual intimacy. And as believers, we also desire a deeper intimacy with God, or that's what we should. And as, as believers at times, sometimes we're going in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, maybe it could be a few months and we look back and we just say, you know, something's different in my life. I'm, what, what, you know, something's missing. You know, something just doesn't seem right. And we really, what it is, is that we're desiring a, a deeper intimacy with the Lord. Maybe we get caught up in the world. Maybe we get caught up in the things that we're doing. So uh, we kind of have to, you know, regain that, um, that relationship there. And in verse 5. Ruth, it was very interesting because Ruth did everything she was told by her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this was a picture of obedience. Um, question authority is the mantra today. But in, in that day, you got this, again, woman who's married into this family, and, and the men die off, and she's with her mother-in-law, and she goes to Israel, and it's a different culture. And mom is saying to her, or mother-in-law is saying, do this, do that, do this. Might not make a whole lot of sense to her growing up, but she was completely obedient. So when you trust someone, we just may want to be obedient sometimes and not ask so many questions. Um, the men's study Saturday morning is going to be neat. When I talk about Joshua and Caleb, uh, how these guys were just obedient men, uh, right? And 
even though the other spies went and they, they looked at the different scenarios of the promised land and they had questions and concerns, Joshua and Caleb said, listen, if God said we could do it, forget about the semantics, let's just do it, right? Don't ask so many questions. I kind of look at one of my favorite uh, old-time clean movies was The Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi, right? He said to paint the fence and to wax on, wax off. And the kid was so mad that he said, I've been your slave for these few days. You didn't teach me any karate. So when he went to attack him, he said, show me paint the fence. And the kid went like this and he, he blocked, but he was teaching him muscle memory to react to the, to the threat. And that's how he taught him karate through all these different things. And the kid eventually really learned it. But um, there's another probably better example in actual in the missions field. I'm trying to remember where it was, but some missions fields can be very hostile. And there was a story about a missionary and his son, and he was a, a little boy, and it was really the importance of teaching the kid obedience. And one day there was something going on, and the father was able to see from a distance his son, and he said, get down on the ground, and the kid got down. And there was some type of uh, tribal war and all, but the kid laid down flat on the ground because his father told him to, and it spared his life. So obedience, you know? We live in a society where that's not heard of much anymore, but we, we really should go back to that obedience model. But really it was this obedience that Ruth employed that worked to, to get her this really fairy tale um, ending, this storybook romance, right? Because she was obedient. So she does these things and he responds and before you know it, you know, everything works out well. So verse six says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. <laughs> and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a near kinsman or kinsman redeemer. So she does what she's told. Boaz awakens and he finds her at his feet. Um, in this instance, what she's really saying, the whole translation to this ceremony was, make me your wife. Right? You go, girl. <laughs> Make me your wife. Verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am your near kinsman. However, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a near kinsman for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So Boaz is impressed by Ruth's character again. And being older, he said, you know, you didn't go after the younger men. And what he's really saying to her is, uh, I mean, there's a... There's a Definitely an impression, certainly outright spoken, that there was a pretty good gap in age between these two. But uh, Boaz basically tells her that she chose him, an older man, not only to marry, but to redeem Elimelech's property. And you see, Ruth was uh, a free woman, and she had a good reputation, and certainly she could have been courted by any of the young men in the area, right? She probably assimilated very well into Hebrew 
culture, but Ruth and Naomi were a package deal, right? And Ruth did this, I'm sure she fell in love with Boaz, but also uh, this way she could keep Naomi as part of the family, right? And uh, bear a child in Elimelech's bloodline. So it works out all together by doing it this way. There was only one problem. There existed another Goal who was closer in kinship than a Boaz, who might lawfully say that he would redeem her. And this goes to show you how, and you just see the character of these two through this whole book, is that Boaz was honorable in that he desired to follow the law. He could have said, come on, let's go and let's get married. We'll go on our honeymoon and, you know, we'll go to the Dead Sea and float or whatever the case may be. (laughs) But he desired to follow the law. So what he said was, I got to be honest with you, there's another kinsman redeemer. And uh, let me, you know, he's got to, by the law, it says he's got to get the first chance. And performing the duty was basically um, just deciding whether he wanted to not only take the property, but also marry the widow. So verse 11, Boaz says, everyone knows you are a virtuous woman. Now in the Hebrew, that word can mean virtuous woman or a woman of valor or a woman who's worthy. And we see that in the Proverbs 31 woman, don't we? The times have changed. It's very sad because when I grew up, um, when I was a young guy, <laughs> I think I'm still young, but younger, you know, it was the Madonna generation, right? And, and she changed the standards of how young ladies would conduct themselves. And uh, there was this image, she was a pop icon of she was cool, but she flaunted her sexuality. And of course it happened before Madonna. Uh, but, you know, that's the signal that our society is saying to young women, which is very sad. Um, and all that gets is unwanted pregnancies, diseases, broken futures, and broken relationships. But again, what's being sold is, you know, Hollywood can do anything with the images and the popularity and all this kind of stuff, and really it's damning to young girls. There was a, a commercial, I was going to Google it, just to put different words in to see what it was, but I don't know, how many of you saw that commercial with, there was a, a young, like 11-year-old girl sitting and watching TV, and she had straight blonde hair, and she just was looking at the TV, and you see the TV with all these women, you know, uh, the magazines and the, the culture and what the cheerleaders, and you see all these images flash to this young girl, basically feeding her what she's supposed to look like, and she just kind of looks depressed looking at it, like, how can I measure up to that? Uh, I'm going to do a little research on that, but um, it was really said. It was a good commercial, I thought, and it really shows what our society is teaching young ladies today. But back to this, you know, um, in those days, it was a good thing to be known in the area uh, about a, being a valorous or virtuous woman. Now, again, Ruth had a reputation, not in the sense that we build our reputation and we don't want anyone to tarnish it, but it means the reflection of our character. So that's what we see in this reputation. Not that she's like real pumped up that she's got a good reputation, but it really was a reflection of who she was as a person. Um, and the question is, what are we known as? And this is good to ask ourselves every so often to look at ourselves, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, what do people know me as? Do they know me as Christ-like? Do they know me as fearful and panicking every time something goes wrong? Do they know me as, and we just did this, the two Sunday study on generosity. Are we generous? Are we stingy? Uh, are we selfish? Do we act as individuals? Or are we team players in the body of Christ, all trying to achieve the same goal? Because that is the goal. Verse 11. 
he says to her, do not fear. Do not fear. And again, we've spoken about Boaz as a type of Christ. Do not fret. Do not worry. I'll take care of it. The word Boaz, um, I, I looked at a source that said it was at times used for the word pillar and the pillars that were put in front of the temple. And if you ever looked at the construction of the temple or the way it was described in the Old Testament and the models that they make today, if you have a study Bible, I got some real cool pictures back here. It's pretty fantastic. So this pillar was a picture of strength and stability. And this was what this man emulated. You know, this is what this man exuded. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring the shawl or the cloak that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So don't let it be known that was, a woman was here maybe for two reasons. Nothing was going on that was wrong, but it could give the wrong impression. And... Uh, Certainly, I'm sure he didn't want anybody to think that he was circumventing the proper lawful kinsman-redeemer process. But verse 15 and 16 is funny because basically, you know, I'm sure at this point that Ruth and Naomi were close like mother and daughter, even though they were not blood. Uh, but it was kind of funny because it was almost like saying, don't go back to mom without a gift. So Boaz was, you know, covering all his bases there. And the word, the word shawl can be translated a wide cloak. Think of Little Red Riding Hood with the hood and the big cloak. So what she does is she takes this cloak and opens it up. And why is it important? Because he had to put basically a little bit more than a bushel into this cloak. And she was to wrap it up and bring it as a gift to her mother-in-law. So she probably put it over her back and went back home. And verse 16. Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, is, is that you, my daughter? Or... You know, when you look at the Hebrew, there's a actually interesting translational variations in this one. Or almost literally in the Hebrew is, who are you, my daughter? In other words, implying, are you, are you now the wife of Boaz? See, it's almost like she's asking, not that it, is that you, like she didn't recognize her, but who are you, my daughter? You know, what's your status? Did it work? You know, is he looking to redeem you or... So it's kind of neat because she's wanting to see where, this, where uh, Ruth fits in here in, in relationship to Boaz. And verse 18, she says, Sit still, my daughter. Be patient. These are calm and assuring words and really a picture of faith. I think of Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. Take your hands off the situation and trust God. Everything will work itself out to God's glory. Now some believe, and they take this, there's a spirit of what's being said here. Be still and know that I am God. Not that God says you can't move until I tell you to move. But what he's saying is be still. Don't let your soul be troubled. Don't be fretted. You know, let, let everything in you be calm and assured that no matter which way it goes, God is in control. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves that question. Are we still 
and do we know that God is who he says he is? Now, we are humans, we have human emotions. When something goes wrong, we, we tend to panic. We tend to, I, I, this, I can't believe this, not, not a, another thing could happen. This is, this can't, it's, it's the worst time for me. But when we get past the emotional part, do we as believers, are we still in our hearts knowing, okay, I'm gonna give it to God, right? Listen, I'm not gonna condemn anybody who hears something really bad and uh, you know, gets emotional about it, but do we come to the point where we can pass that and say, I really truly give it to God? And as believers, we have to constantly ask ourselves that question. If we're tossing and turning and laying in bed and thinking of this and thinking of that, I remember one night um, I was doing that and I said to myself, you don't trust God. <laughs> so I kind of went back and forth with myself. I don't know who was talking, but um, I didn't actually hear audible voices. But I actually finally said, you know what? I do trust God. I'm going to bed. And I closed my eyes and I went, fell asleep. Do we trust God, right, to be, to be still? As Christians, we bring our petitions before the Lord and at the end of the day, trust him for the outcome. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the outcome, we don't like the answers. You know, sometimes the outcome is really not what we would prefer to hear, but we still need to trust them. Naomi says of Boaz, one of the last things that are said here, the man won't rest and he, until he concludes the matter this day. This is my type of guy. He gets things done, right? He knows how to get the job done. And Boaz is a type of Christ, is the hero of the story. You know, everybody looks to him to help everything, everyone. Naomi's looking to him. Ruth is looking to him. His servants are looking to him, Right? Um, even people who come and glean and in his field, he has a protective nature over those new strangers that come and, and glean, as we saw in the beginning of the story. This guy's a great guy. Um, and, and he has the God-given power here to make up with these two women, to make up for all the years the locusts have eaten, everything these, young, these women went through. You know, this guy has the power, God-given power, to make it all work out for them. And he won't rest until the task is finished. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. Jesus also couldn't rest. He couldn't give up the spirit until he did what he needed to do. Even suffering on that cross, he needed to finish what he had to do before he gave up. So that's pretty amazing. And we shouldn't rest until we've completed what God has given us. You know, And that's the, that's the challenge, folks, is to uh, be receptive to what God is saying. Why do we live our lives? And especially when we see the life of someone cut short, it's more sobering to us to look at that and say, am I living the life that God has given me? You know, if we call ourselves born again Christians, we live to glorify God. And the question is, am I glorifying God with my life? And what is the purpose of my life? You know, and to really just see, I know that if you ask God that and you really want to know what God's desire and will is for your life, he will definitely reveal it. The scripture is clear. And then are we fulfilling that mandate that God has given us? So we can see all those things in the story. And as we're going to go uh, in chapter four, the ending is an awesome ending. And um, it's just really a, a great story of uh, trusting God, having faith, uh, restoring the years the locusts have eaten, giving beauty for ashes and things of that nature. So as we look at this, let's look at our own lives and uh, see where we can uh, make those applications. Let's pray.